right. Thanks, Dad. Um, for this section of AI podcast, I'll be asking some questions related to ethical use of AI. So in general, what are the ethical limitations of machine learning nowadays? And how has it changed from when you first started robust intelligence? Um, I think it's been always the case that um, AI and machine learning is, you know, they're, they're, extremely, they're extremely sensitive and, and vulnerable um, and can sometimes behave very weirdly. Um, and I think this is something that, as I said, like people, did not really know uh, before, but are starting to realize. And I think this is like the, the major uh, limitation uh, that um, these machine learning models have. Um, and I think people are starting to be aware, not just because you know researchers have found out about them, but also because more machine learning models are uh, put in production, right? And, and used for actual applications. Before it was only applied to uh, you know, some benchmark data sets that um, lab researchers like really cleaned up and, and labeled correctly and, and all these things. But I think as machine learning, more more machine learning models are getting into the wild, I think these uh, issues about sensitivity, vulnerability, weird behaviors, I think all of these are, are being uh, exposed more. Um, the other thing that I will say is, um, I think what I just said was about the models. I think we, when we discuss machine learning, there's always the aspect of the, the data that you're training the model on. And I think the limitations of machine learning is that, right, machine learning models follow what the data tells, tells it to, to follow, right? So if essentially, if your data is biased, for example, right, then your model is going to be biased if you're, not, if you're not careful about the way you train the models. And these things are uh, things that um, I think practitioners are not uh, not aware of enough and, and, and not taking enough precautions uh, at this moment. I see. And you mentioned the liability of AI, but in case of AI security failure at a company, what kind of responsibilities would be incurred and who will bear those responsibilities? Um, so I think as long as, as, long as the, the usage of the, the AI models by the users were reasonable. I think it's you know it's mainly the companies that are going to be uh, that are going to be responsible for for all the all the issues uh, that are going to happen. And um, this is actually where we come in, right? Like um, basically, what we provide to these companies, as I said, is like it's like a risk management uh, software, right? For for AI. And basically, um, the idea is um, you know whenever companies develop these AI models, right? They can use their product to make sure that um, their model's risk-free and also, as I said, right, like manage this across their organization, right? So um, in some sense, like um, this issue about like AI security failure and, and, and responsibilities, I think the companies can rely on us to kind of uh, reduce some of the, the responsibilities that they have to take um, uh, and kind of, um, you know, give that to us so in some sense it's like a it's kind of like an insurance uh if, if you understand what i mean yeah yes absolutely um you've mentioned the biases of ai but do you think it's ever possible to combat those issues if yes in what ways and in what terms will be fairness and if no is there anything we should change about the use of ai i think i think you know eliminating eliminating like biased behaviors completely is something that's extremely difficult. Um, but I think there are, 
I think there are a variety of um, kind of ideas that are presented uh, to tackle these issues, right? To about like these biased models. Um, and um, obviously there's no like bulletproof algorithm or there's no like single fairness definition that can like solve all the problems about, you know, uh, biases in, in machine learning. But these are definitely information that we can reveal uh, to one, like for example, before the model goes out into production, make a make an informed decision about whether whether we should, right? Uh, because say that models is making like certain uh, biased decisions. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a strong believer of like, kind of say permanently, um, like stopping the use of AI in, in a specific domain. I just think it's, it's just, a, it's just that we are not prepared to say release AI in that domain because we don't have enough tools to assess, assess its risks. Right. So I think as we develop ways to, for example, um, understand the, the types of decisions that AI make around, say, you know, fair decisions, right? Then I think uh, we will be able to um, apply AI in, in, in most domains that are considered like very um, kind of, I guess, harmful right now. Right. I definitely agree that the power to make informed decision is important. But sometimes the internal process of AI is described as a black box because it is hard to know how the AI drive the conclusion to a certain problem. So how do you think it's important for us to try to make the AI's black box explainable for an ethical use? Right. I think I think it's definitely important. Um, I think my short answer is like interpretability is is necessary, but not not sufficient actually for for um, kind of risk-free and, and, and fair models. Um, and what I mean by that is like, you know, it's, it's necessary in the sense that, you know, in, interpretable models, like it builds up trust, especially with, you know, uh, people who are not building the models. It obviously reveals um, why certain say decisions were happen decisions were made, right? After we, we realized that, for example, you know, they made wrong decisions and it kind of gives justification. But right, it's it's not sufficient in the sense that um, it's not going to necessarily prevent, for example, misbehaviors from happening in the future. Right? Um, you can explain things post hoc, right? But you can't really like prevent things from happening by, uh, for example, uh, having like good ways to explain uh, the decisions of of AI. Right? So this is where like. You know, this is why, for example, we we are not saying like we are building ways to make AI more interpretable, right? We're we're basically saying like we're making ways to make AI more robust and safe, and 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 we say that because we believe that in some sense, like robustness encompasses interpretability uh, as a concept to kind of ensure um, that um, you know AI is 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 safe and secure and and can be. Um, can be protected against biases. Right, that makes sense. Thank you for your opinions. Let me switch the conversation to your personal career as a co-founder in tech industry. So in the beginning, I mentioned that you started a data science consulting firm during your gap year, right? Could you give us some details about it and how you think it helped you grow as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so, so for context, I... Um... I, I, when I was at Harvard after my sophomore year, 
um, I took a year off to um, start a regional branch of Boston-based um, data science firm called Quantco. Um, and that was in Japan. And, and I spent a year doing that, um, I think. And then we, we consulted companies uh, like uh, we consulted like a large e-commerce company and, and, and things like that. Um, I think it prepared me for my startup in two ways. Um, I think one is, so when we started, we were, uh, it was just the three of us, right? And, and so inevitably, inevitably, like we had to like in the morning, like write code in the afternoon, like join meetings with, with these customers. And then right in the evening, like think about like, you know, kind of growing our, our team and also expanding to like other companies, right? To do these, uh, these consulting projects. So I think the, this experience definitely prepared me uh, to kind of thrive in, in this type of startup environment. So I think that's one. I think the second aspect is I realized that um, I, I realized the importance of like being, having the technical edge, right? So when I worked at Quanco, um, I think as you said in the in introduction, right? Like I worked with a lot of um, like econ PhDs, right? econometrics PhDs from Harvard and MIT. And at the time, right, like I, I didn't really know how to read like research papers and then kind of worked with people who were just like, you know, grabbing like these random papers, well, not random, like these papers and kind of implement very effective, uh, say pricing solutions or demand estimation, demand estimation solutions that uh, these, uh, our, our clients could not implement, right? And, and this is where I realized like, oh, like, you know, I can't just be like, you know, interested in startups or, you know, have like good ideas, but also have like the solid technical foundation to do that. So I think those are the two things that I, that I learned. That sounds great. If you could, could you give us some pros and cons about going to academia or working in an industry related to computer science? What advice would you give to students for choosing between the two? I think, um, I think there are, I think there's one way to kind of separate the two is like, you know, industry versus academia. And I think even within industry, um, there's like starting a startup versus kind of, you know, going into say, say bigger companies. And I think with startups and going to academia, um, I think, I think these are both extremely challenging paths uh, for, for, for good reasons for, for both of them. So like, I think unless there's a, unless like, and, and I think people will generally convince you not to do that. And, and I think if you, if you just can't stop yourself from, for example, you know, going to a PhD and, and doing research or, you know, starting a startup, I think, you know, I think that that should be the deciding factor for whether, for example, you're gonna you're gonna do these things. And and for example, for me, right, like um, I I was actually initially thinking of, of of doing a PhD, but then decided not to because I, I just didn't feel like I had enough passion to do that. Right. So I, I think um, for these two routes, I think you know it's it's really important to kind of ask yourself if if you're going to able to kind of survive the the hardships uh, that are gonna that you're gonna have. So I think that's one. Yeah, that's one thing that I can say. So you chose to go with the industry track, but what is it that made you want to start your own company instead of joining a large companies like Google or Facebook? Um, I think, so uh, I think when I graduated, I, 
as I said, so I, I basically had an offer from like the Stanford PhD program. So I had an option of going to academia. I actually also had a, an option to go to Google. And I think it was more like AI, not, not cybersecurity, but like become an AI researcher there. But as I said, I think um, kind of, I was interested in both like uh, working on strong tech as well as right being in a startup environment, right? And if I went to these places, right, like I, I could only get the, the core tech aspect of it, but not really the, the startup-y atmosphere, right? And I think this, this decision of, of, you know, starting this company was obviously due to like, you know, the situation that, you know, this like kind of AI domain is in and, and the fact that most AIs are vulnerable. And, and, you know, I was like, oh, like there is a great opportunity here, but on a personal level, right? Like I also... Uh, could not choose something better because, you know, robust intelligence basically had both like the, the technical aspect as well as the, uh, the entrepreneurial aspect. So that was kind of why I decided to start my own company. I see. Um, if you were to hire a new college student majoring in CS, what characteristics other than being able to code well would you look for? Um, I think... I think having I think having the right kind of mindset to to join a startup is really important, and there are a couple of like I think important things to to keep in mind. One is like most things when you join like most things you have to learn yourself, right? Like uh, and it's not because like you know we're mean and we're not teaching, but it's it's more like we just don't know, right? And and most of the things that even like I'm working on today, like I I'm doing it for the first time, and it's it's the same for uh, a lot of our a lot of our team members, right? So I think having kind of being able to get excited about working on things that uh, you don't know how to work on or you haven't worked on before, I think that's a really important mindset. And I think the other aspect is, um, this might sound interesting, but like, I think ready to not be spoiled, right? I think uh, one thing that's happening in my opinion right now is like, you know, like, if you go to these, like, for example, great schools like Harvard and MIT, and like you get like internships at these tech companies, they will treat you like, you know, like prince and princess, right? And, and kind of like they give you all the free food and, and, and all the like the massages and, and like good, good salary and, and give you pay for your housing. And, 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 you know, you can like have a, right, like, like, um, like kind of a nine to five job. And I think, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's your life choice, but I think if you are thinking of like joining a startup, like, like ours, um, I think kind of, you know, I think being ready to jump into this kind of environment where, um, a lot of things, a lot of things are happening and moving quickly, um, I, I think is, is, uh, extremely important. Right. We've heard about the required mindsets and hardships that go with joining a startup environment, but what is it that you personally feel joy and reward from your profession? Yeah, I think for me, um, I like, I love solving problems. And when I say problems, like not just like, like math problems or CS problems, but just like any, any problems. And the more diverse the problem sets are, the, the more interesting it is for me. And I also easily get bored, like with with doing anything. But like 
after I started the startup, I, I, I've never been bored. So, <laughs> and, and that's because there's just like so many things to do every day. And, and these are all very exciting and challenging things. So for me personally, what I enjoy the most is the fact that the types of challenges are always getting harder and, and are always getting updated in, in various aspects. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and thoughts on AI today. This wraps up our first episode of 10AI podcast with Koji Noshiba, the co-founder of Rust Intelligence. Thank you again for coming today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you.